bow heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the canon, the completed canon, so that we can see things through your lens, Father. We know it takes time, but you're willing in your patience to sanctify us experientially, knowing where we're headed. What a great hope we have, Father. And that great hope was really sealed at a cross or on a cross 2,000 years ago, for which we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. We are on the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 38. I'm really glad to see um, uh, you all here this evening because this is a, a pivotal lesson. It's, um, there'll be a fair amount of concentration, but uh, he's really going to bring it home for you. Uh, and this is, as Sunday was, as multiple people told me, unsort of solicited, that Sunday was a do-over, that Sunday was a double-take for people because it was so pregnant with um, Scripture and doctrine and just sort of synthesizing. And um, I agree 100%. I think he had me actually encourage you to look at it more than once. Uh, I would say that this evening is equally so, and in some ways even more so. These are uh, really big, important issues that we've, we're going to be covering here in our lesson. With that said, we're going to get situated with a passage that does just that perfectly. So go to Romans 8.24. Romans 8.24, this passage will certainly get us situated uh, into this evening's message. I hope you have some energy um, to concentrate because it's going to require some concentration and I can just do the best I can I'm just a you know a teacher so um, I'm going to do the best I can to teach you but it's a two-way street it's like any classroom setting I could sit here and be the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the planet and if you're a horrible student then there's nothing that can be done for you uh, so likewise when this teacher gives homework you should do it right Romans 8.24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we, eagerly, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep, for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What a wonderful way to begin this evening's message. 
uh, gets that big picture front and center, gets us thinking with God's perspective, to borrow from Sunday's uh, lesson. And uh, one of the reasons, now that I'm standing before you on Tuesday, one of the reasons I know we had you do a do-over on Sunday's lesson is because I have really no review of Sunday in tonight's lesson. So if you skipped out on the homework, then you didn't get the normal review. And tonight's lesson may be less effective, let's put it that way. In any case, on Sunday we did consider God's viewpoint on salvation and sanctification. In brief, we might summarize it this way. God saves and sanctifies. He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us to Himself. These are two sides of the same coin. That's what he's been trying to say now for, I don't know, a month or so. Well, probably really building up to it since the beginning of this series, which is, what, 38 parts old now, 37 parts old? He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us to himself. These are two sides of the same coin, both guaranteed for the believer. Analogs are repent and believe, receive faith, confess sin, press on, filled with the Spirit, etc., etc. Those are just a couple of analogs that follow this pattern. He saves us, He sanctifies us. He saves us, He sanctifies us. He saves and sanctifies us. And both are guaranteed. That's the way you have to think about what He's been saying. That's the big picture, godly perspective that He's saying to all of us. Think of it this way. It's impossible for a person to give another, uh, another person or another only one side of a coin. If there's two sides of this coin, if he saves and sanctifies and it's two sides of the same coin, think of it this way. It's impossible, if I give you a quarter right now, it's impossible for me to give you the head side only, right? I mean, you're getting both. That's the exact same idea. The gift is both. It's two sides of the same coin. So it's impossible for a person to give another only one side of a coin. A believer receives both sides of the coin. That takes us to deliverance. What about deliverance? So we have salvation, sanctification. What about deliverance? What about this activity word, if you would? The front side of the coin, salvation, relates to sin. So whenever you hear the word salvation, think of it theologically as relating intimately to the sin issue. You're saved somehow from sin. Could be the judgment of sin on your life at salvation proper. Could be the power of sin experientially. Could be even the presence of sin, ultimately. But when you hear the word salvation, think sin. So the front side of the coin, salvation, relates to sin, whereas the back side of the coin, sanctification, relates to righteousness. After he saves you, he has to impart righteousness to you. With salvation proper, we call that imputed righteousness. He doesn't just save you from sin. That's only half the equation. He also makes you righteous so that you can fellowship with God. But they're both the same coin, right? He doesn't go halfway and stop. So the front side of the coin, salvation, relates to sin, whereas the back side of the coin, sanctification, relates to righteousness. 
Deliverance may be thought of as flipping of the coin in the life of a believer. A believer is delivered from sin to righteousness, from the domain of darkness to the domain of light, from death to life, etc., etc. There's this sort of activity. That's what deliverance is. And this is where, I mean, I'm convinced of it, having come from that school, if you would, and having matured out of it, this is where categorical hyperdoctrinalization often falls short. It focuses so much attention on a single aspect, for example, one side of the coin, for such long periods of time, often due to the complexity of the doctrines themselves, that a person stops finishing the sentences. If you don't finish the sentence, you never get the big picture. There's no congruity to the way God sees things. The gospel, salvation, and sanctification. So, so much attention is spent on single aspects that people spend so much time in the weeds for such long periods of time, they never emerge to see the big picture. And that's with all the the glory is, frankly, where all these so-called exciting things, don't get me wrong, it's exciting to go down into the weeds, that's necessary. But we're really trying to color a bigger picture. We're really trying to get to see really one person more and more, our Lord and Savior. So that's one of the problems with hyperdoctrinization. It focuses so much time for so long that people stop finishing sentences that they've started in their minds. They've lost their way. They, they lose sight of the big picture. Let me give you an analogy on this particular topic, specifically on deliverance. Here's the analogy. <clears throat> Domino's delivers pizzas. I checked it out. Over 400 million a year. 400 million pizzas a year. Domino's alone. Okay? Well, suppose those pizzas represent believers saved from the fiery furnace of the pizza ovens. Let's go with it. Wow, that's a stupid one. This is going nowhere. Monica's like, maybe I'll put it in the book. No, that's stupid. I won't put that in the book. So suppose these pizzas represent believers, saved from the fiery furnace of the pizza ovens. So a pizza is made for a purpose, right? It's made for a pur- it's made, as far as Domino's is concerned, to be delivered. A pizza is made to be delivered. Okay? And they do 400 million plus. Well, God made every believer to be delivered, saved and sanctified. He didn't just cook you. He knew from eternity past you were going to be delivered. Fair enough? So, likewise, God made every believer to be delivered. So, are we finishing the sentence if we simply take the pizzas out of the oven? No, we are not. What good is making 400 million pizzas and not delivering them? That would be us proposing that God 
makes a bunch of believers but never delivers them. We're made, He predestined us to deliver us, to glorify us, to impute, to impart righteousness, to deliver us from sin, to save us from sin. So what good is making 400 million pizzas and not delivering them? Pizzas are meant to be delivered. Likewise, in the case of believers, every pizza, quote, believer, is delivered to God. God is a very hungry person, obviously, having ordered over 400 million pizzas per year. You get the point. The point is that Deliverance for a believer is analogous to Domino's Pizza. Believe it or not, up here on the board. Every believer was made to be delivered. And there's a reason why that's green and bold-faced. Every believer was made to be delivered. He didn't make a mistake. Every believer has been predestined. It means before they were even born. They were made to be delivered. And God doesn't fail. Unlike Domino's, where the pizza falls on the floor, or the pizza delivery driver gets lost, no believer is ever not delivered. Now that's the incredible perspective that the Holy Spirit inspired in the passage we just finished with. Look at it again. Look at Romans 8.29. I know it doesn't say Domino's Pizza, but maybe Paul is just a lot smarter and eloquent than me. But you get the point. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestination, I don't want to get into theology. It means that all the gifts that he was planning on giving you, they've already been ordained. They were ordained before you were born. He knew you were going to be a believer. He predestined you to be delivered. Deliverance is part of that gift set. Some people call it a portfolio. Deliverance was part of it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You might be wondering why Paul's using the past tense. He's using the past tense to stress its certainty. To stress its certainty. What do you mean they're already glorified? But we're not, quote, unquote, glorified ultimately yet. No, we're not, but it's that certain. As far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. These are massive, mind-blowing realities, folks. Tremendously encouraging and capable of setting you free in ways you never thought possible, you know, just as it is written. I'll give you the message version of 1 Corinthians 2.9 up here on the board. No one's ever seen or heard anything like this. Never so much as imagined anything quite like it, what God has arranged for those who love Him. Hmm. This evening we'll be laying some doctrinal groundwork is the best way to look at it. Some sort of finer issues. He's got us focusing on the big big picture, but there are some finer communicative issues, issues that I have to set in stone so I, we can communicate, right? That 
we can sort of uh, use as the foundation moving forward. So we'll be laying some doctrinal groundwork. We've, also, we've already covered a lot of ground, so here's a review before we press on. Again, God saves and sanctifies. He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us to himself. These are two sides of the same coin, both guaranteed for the believer. Analogs are repent and believe, receive faith, or confess and press on, being filled with the Spirit. The point is, using the coin analogy, it's impossible for a person to give another only one side of a coin. A believer receives both sides of the coin. That's the way it goes. And then, of course, what is deliverance? The front side of the coin, salvation, relates to sin, whereas the back side of the coin, sanctification, relates to righteousness. Deliverance may be thought of as the flipping of the coin in the life of a believer. A believer is delivered from sin to righteousness, from the domain of darkness to the domain of light, from death to life, etc., etc. And then, of course, the simple truth. Every believer was made to be delivered. Romans 8, 29 to 30. You were predestined to be delivered, to be saved and sanctified from faith to faith. It's critically important that you really digest these things, folks, and especially spend ample time on the perspective he's been giving us. And I'm not just suggesting it as your shepherd, as some kind of a, you know, you re- it would be really good if you did this. I'm not saying that at all. It's absolutely necessary that you put aside some time to ponder and pray to God about these things. You need to get them right in your soul. And I'm telling you right now, I spend my days in the Word of God, mulling over things. He gives me time to contemplate, etc., etc. And these things took me some time. So just remember that. That if the shepherd's standing there saying, these things took me some time, what does that say about the pupils? Are you so arrogant? to think that you can mop it all up in one fell swoop and go back to celebrating whatever it is you're celebrating outside of church, yourself? What is it? So listen. It's not me just going, oh, be a good little doobie and do this thing. It'd be really nice, you know, if you showed up for your, you know, your sister's birthday party. No, this isn't that at all. This is you learning truth. This is absolutely necessary. If you don't get the big picture, you're going to go exactly back to where you were. You know, before you started seeing the big picture, before you started being set free, because you're going to miss the boat again, the same way you missed the boat last time, and you're going to sit there and scratch it and say, why am I still in prison? Why am I still in bondage? Why am I not set free like the Bible says? Because you know why? It's very simple. I heard DJ say it before class. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. And if you're not willing to submit to the authority of this pulpit and this spiritual gift, 
then you got nothing going. You're going to keep skipping out. If this spiritual gift in this pulpit says, hey, listen, this is absolutely necessary. Listen to a lesson more than once. Then do it. Then do it. I had someone write to me recently, astutely, quite astutely, what do we have to give but our obedience? And you're not obeying me. I'm a delegated authority, so get that out of your head. I don't like you. I'm older than you, for crying out loud. Too bad. I'm the ordained authority. You don't like it? You know where you can go. Think about what the Spirit is saying to you right now. It's absolutely necessary that you get these things correct in your soul And if it took the person that's speaking to you a while to do it, I don't have to intimate those things to you. But I obeyed him. There's always something else I could be doing with my time. But he sits me on my butt and says, obey me and get this right. Because you're going to go stand before a lot of people so that they can get it right. So you need to obey when he stresses something this much for like three minutes now. It's absolutely necessary that you put aside some time to ponder and pray to God about these things. It's an issue of obedience, folks. All right, with those big picture items fresh in our minds, let's dig in a little bit with some of that aforementioned doctrinal groundwork The Spirit wants to add some, let's call it some depth and color. We've been spending some time on big picture. Big picture things, you know, if you you think of literature, big picture is you look at the table of contents, right? You might read the forward or the, the, um, what's the thing called on the back? The summary, what do you call it on the back of the book? Nobody knows. The thing on the back of the book, you know, people get paid good money to summarize the book for, you know, that, that thing, whatever it is. Thanks for, thanks for hanging me out there, right? So if you want big picture, it ends up looking like an outline or a framework, and that's what he's been doing. He's been giving us this thing. But we have to go now, go a little deeper into Scripture, and we're going to get some more perspective. Let's look at it this way. So there's two perspectives that's been sort of been on the table now for a while uh, relative to salvation. There's God's perspective, salvation from sin. So to God, these, it's a done deal. Okay? God sees everything at once. But for us, the way that we relate to the way that he's saving us, and God doesn't just save us at salvation proper. He, as the Spirit's been teaching us, saves us daily. And then he saves us ultimately. How is that so? Well, from our perspective, we might think of it in three different tenses, if you would. Positional is past tense, from the penalty of sin. That was you being saved. We call that positional salvation. Experientially, from the power of sin. Sin's still in this world, but He's going to deliver us from the power of it. And then ultimately, from the very presence of sin, which means in heaven there's not going to be any sin there's not going to be any issue anymore 
with sin. So these are the tenses, if you would. Past, present, and future. So we might call those positional salvation, experiential salvation, and ultimate salvation. God's will, remember, salvation is always related to sin. He saves us from sin in these three tenses. Positionally, experientially, and ultimately. He's saving us from sin. God's will is not just to save you from sin, but also to set you apart, a.k.a. sanctify you, for His good purposes. In other words, make you righteous. Two sides of the same coin. He doesn't just save you from sin, He also sanctifies you to Him, which means to make you righteous. Whether it's imputed, imparted, or absolute. You see the pattern? Those are big picture sweeping items. But we need Scripture. It's great to have the, you know, the, the doctrinal framework in front of us, but we need Scripture as well. And we try not to lose that precious perspective that He's been building in our souls. So that's one way to look at it. So we'll also be studying the other side of the coin, though, which we would call sanctification perspectives. Again, God's perspective He's going to sanctify us, set apart us for sin, or for Him, excuse me. Make us righteous, in other words. Our perspective, we might phase it out. Most of us are comfortable with the three phases, quote-unquote, of sanctification. I'll stick with those. Positionally, imputed righteousness. Remember, imputed is a judicial term, so it's judicially. Experientially, in time, you might have imparted righteousness. That's when you bear good fruit. By the grace of God. That's a daily thing. In other words, He sanctifies us daily. And then ultimate sanctification, which is an eternal thing, that's complete righteousness. You have a resurrection body, you're in heaven, it's all over. Okay? So there's three tenses of salvation, if you'd like to think of it that way, past, present, future, and three phases, if you would, of sanctification. But these things, look, what have, what's the Spirit been saying? God saves and sanctifies. He saves and sanctifies. So if you think about positional things, think of positional salvation and sanctification. Experiential salvation and sanctification. And then ultimate salvation and sanctification. One has to do with sin. One has to do with righteousness. Okay? So from God's perspective, both salvation and sanctification are already etched in stone. Things each of we believers have already been predestined to receive. That's why his column's nice and simple. <laughs> his column's nice and simple. It's already done. All right, so that's our working framework. We're going to slow down now while keeping these two slides fresh in our minds. And let's go back now to gather some supporting scripture, as that's always the only correct way to substantiate doctrines. All right, so we go back to this guy. Salvation perspectives. Positional salvation from the penalty of sin. Let's give this some color first of all. Positional salvation, think of it again as a past tense issue. This is something, if you're saved, it's behind you. 
you've been judicially declared justified, declared righteous. So that's a past tense issue. Okay. God's will is to save, deliver the whole world, John 3.16, from the guilt and penalty of sin. However, the gate is narrow that leads to life. As an old friend, Matthew 7.13-14, so not all are saved. A person is positionally saved when they believe are justified and righteousness is imputed judicially to their account. Enough said on positional sanctification. That's something that happened to you when you were saved proper. You were declared righteous. You were justified. You were saved from sin. Okay? Luke 7.50, 1 Corinthians 1.18, 2 Corinthians 2.15, 2 Timothy 1.9. Go to Luke 7.50. We'll just peruse the scriptures. Most of you are going to be pretty comfortable with positional salvation and positional sanctification, I imagine. Especially after 20 hours of the gospel and salvation. So this part of our study is not going to be challenging whatsoever. None of it really is if you've been paying attention, but there's a lot to it. You know, there's a lot of scripture. I mean, look at that. What's that? One, two, three, four, five. That's six scripture, six uh, passages right there. Luke 7, 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's a relative statement to positional sanctification. It's past tense to this person. Okay, so he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. How about 1 Corinthians 1.18? 1 Corinthians 1.18, we're just going to go through these supporting scriptures, these supporting verses. If you're really rambunctious, I certainly would encourage you, for the sake of context, to read the chapters that surround all these verses. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Being saved, if you're saved, then you're a believer, as we like to say. Go to 2 Corinthians 2.15. 2 Corinthians 2.15. God's saving people all the time. And this is what he's doing. Positional salvation. 2 Corinthians 2.15 For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Again, positional salvation is a past tense thing. and with, you know, There's a plurality going there in the last two verses. That's why it's we and us. And there's a sort of a active sort of ongoing thing. That's because individuals are being saved all the time from these groups. But positional salvation is in view. Go to 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9. So we're just supporting the point on the board. This is the healthy thing to do, folks. This has to remember, I can sit here and spit venom. <laughs> Or do cartwheels or stand on my head, spit nickels. I don't know. Whatever. Do mysterious, all kinds of mysterious things. Not. Only the word 
is able to do the work it needs to do in you. I can't. Remember, I'm just a bus driver. All right, here's some, look out here. This is the scripture. This is the poppy field of salvation, positional salvation. That flower, that flower, that flower, that flower. Those are the verses. Whee! You have to do, you have to obey. Obey, which means spend some serious time. If I, if, if I take you by, um, what's that, uh, was it Cypress Gardens down in Florida? Is that still around? Remember with all the flowers? It was part of Disney World. Okay, so if I, if I put you in a Lamborghini, the windows this big, you can see, and I drive through Cypress Gardens, and I say, look at the flowers over there, look at them over there, and I, are you going to be able to identify all the flowers by memory by whipping by them one time? That's what we're doing. You have to be an active part. You have to be an active learner. That's what it means to obey. That's the lesson he tried to teach some of you when we took two months of Tuesdays off. When you figured out for yourself, you weren't an active learner. You're a lazy sloth who just wants to be spoon-fed. Here comes the plum pudding, Gerber food. For some of you, that's what you realized. You want to be spoon-fed Gerber baby food. Now's not the time. Okay? You're not in a high chair. You're not a toothless blob. Some of you might be shortly. I'm just saying, you get old enough, you know. Anyways. There's only so much a bus driver can do. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Yeah, you were predestined as a believer. And that's that. Again, the point on the board, positional salvation, past tense. We're in a doctrinal mode right now. We're surveying Scripture. These are the things that he wants you to understand, the structure, the framework, the straw man, however you'd like to look at it. God's will is to save, deliver the whole world, John 3.16, from the guilt and penalty of sin. However, the gate is now that leads to life, Matthew 7.13-14. So not all are saved. A lot of people out there teaching the gate is wide now, but I digress. A person is positionally saved when they believe are justified and righteousness is imputed judicially to their account. Remember, faith even is accounted or credited as righteousness, so you're given faith, saving faith. And we just looked at Luke 7.50, 1 Corinthians 1.18, 2 Corinthians 2.15, 2 Timothy 1.9. So that covers, whoops, where is it? Oh, that's an old slash. You can be in that. That covers positional salvation. Okay, so positional salvation from the penalty of sin. Next, we have experiential 
salvation from the power of sin. Now, this is where it gets colorful because the bookends are a little bit easier because they're more absolute. But the middle ground, sanctification, experiential salvation, this is where people really need to buckle down and understand. And I think this is where a lot of error has been made on the subject, frankly. That has been, at least partially I'm convinced of it, born out of perverted Gospels, as we learned for the first 20 lessons. If you have a weak, watered-down, accommodating Gospel that focuses only on a portion of Scripture, then you end up with errors in the experiential phase of things, the present tense of things, because the Gospel wasn't full power. The Gospel was weakened to try to widen the gate. And that's the big error that we studied, but that should be under our belts. So now, doctrinally, we're looking at experiential salvation issues, again, from the power of sin. Remember, salvation is sin, sanctification relative to righteousness. So we'll add some color to this. Experiential salvation, which is the present tense, think of it that way. Again, I've said it more colloquially, as God saves us daily. That's what I was getting at. Experiential salvation. What do you mean He saves us daily? What do you mean He saves us all the time? Well, here we go. God's will, or God wills to save, deliver His children from the power of sin by means of faith. Psalm 34, 17 and 19. Remember, Jesus Christ didn't Leave us alone. He gave us the Word. He gave us the Spirit. God will impart faith to the humble heart. So God wills to save, deliver. I'm using the same language on purpose, by the way, because the pattern is the same regardless of the tense or phase. God wills to save, deliver His children from the power of sin by means of faith. Remember, positional was the Guilt or the penalty of sin, experiential, is the power of sin. And you are saved daily by means of faith. Psalm 34, 17 and 19. However, the vestiges of sin, the leftovers, if you would, the vestiges of sin frustrate a believer's deliverance through persistent influence. We have three enemies that we deal with, the flesh, Romans 7, 14 to 25, Satan, James 4, 7, the world, 1 John 5, 4 to 5. And then we'll amplify those things with John 17, 17, Romans 6, 14, 8, 2, Galatians 5, 16, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Certainly no shortage of scripture on experiential salvation or present tense saving. Go to Psalm 34, 17 first. We'll amplify that first point. That he, his will is to save his children from the power of sin by means of faith. And this is a real-time issue. In other words, sin still exists in this world. And it has a certain influential power. Because we have three enemies. One of them is our own body. Which is temptable. So, sin is and still has some power in our lives. Psalm uh, 
uh, where am I? Psalm uh, 34, 17 to 19. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's his will. There's sin in this world. There's power. There's influence. As a result, and the Lord delivers us. Okay? However, again, the vestiges of sin, to continue with the point on the board, frustrated believers' deliverance through persistent influence. We have the three enemies with respect to the three enemies. First, we have the flesh. Go to Romans 7.20. I encourage you to read the whole of 14 to 25, but the highlight is Romans 7.20. So we have our flesh, certainly not our best friend. Certainly influences us, and that is the power of sin, even in our bodies. Romans 7.20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, this is Paul, of course, I am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me. And there goes the struggle. Second, we have Satan. Go to James 4.7. James 4.7, we have Satan as our second enemy in view of three. James 4.7. So he has a presence, an activity, an influence in this world, him and his demons, fiery darts, He's active. He is the, quote, God of this world, after all. But the scripture says, James 4, 7, Submit therefore to God, you believers. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why do we have to resist the devil? Because he's trying to sow sin in your life. That's why. He's an enemy. And then thirdly, we have the world. Go to 1 John 5, 4. 1 John 5, 4. Again, these are just the basics of experiential salvation. This is how God, in other words, saves us daily from the power of sin. Positional penalty. Experiential power. Ultimate presence. Okay? Past, present, future. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So what overcomes the world? Our faith. Okay? Think of Paul. From faith to faith. There's movement. There's experience, folks. And without faith, we're going to be dead in the water. But God guarantees to apportion each of us a measure of faith. And that's His divine goodwill. Why some people get certain quote-unquote flavors of faith and some get other kind of, you know, then this way. Don't ask me. What I know is that he's trying to bring glory to himself. And he says, hey, remain in the condition which I called you. Stop trying to be like your neighbors. Don't do the, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 thing where you're comparing spiritual gifts even. Don't do that thing. This is my plan. I know what's going on. I'm going to use you over here, and I'm going to use you over there, and I'm going to use this person over here. And I'm going to give you this kind of faith, and then that kind of faith, and that person that kind of faith to strengthen them in the condition in which they were called to bring glory to me. 
And each of you is born unique, like a snowflake. Why are you laughing? Guys are ridiculous. You know, I try to be all like beautiful with prose. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So that completes this quick survey of the three enemies in the principle on the board. Again, experiential salvation, present tense. God wills to save, deliver his children from the power of sin by means of faith. However, the vestiges of sin frustrate a believer's deliverance through persistent influence. We have three enemies, the flesh, Satan, and the world. Now, as we did with positional sanctification, let's substantiate the overall doctrinal statement on the board with some additional scripture. Go to John 17, 17. John 17, 17. Obviously, John 17 is Jesus' prayer to his Father, the same prayer that says, hey, listen, I know they're not of the world, but they're in it. Don't take them out of it. Save them while they're in it. Deliver them from the evil one. That's experiential salvation. He saves us daily. That was part of Christ's prayer. Leave them there. Bring glory to yourself, Father, by saving them daily. Give them faith by grace. That's the channel. Same channel as salvation, same channel as experiential sanctification, right? Do this thing over and over and save them. Bring glory to you. John 17, 17. Watch Satan stomp his feet and pout, his, pout and cross his arms. Sanctify. I don't know if he really does that, by the way. That's not scriptural. Just saying. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What do you think? All right. So, all right. What did he just say? What was the big emphasis on obedience? Get your butts here. And then when he says, redo a lesson, redo it. Why? How does he sanctify you? In truth. You're driving by a poppy field filled with six billion flowers in a Lamborghini one time is not going to cut it. Remember that old slide I used to have? Compression, decompression. Hours upon hours of compression to get to a single hour. Then you add water and it goes... It decompresses in your soul. Possibly the same amount of hours required. Just saying somewhere in your life. How am I going to do that? You know what my schedule looks like? Have you seen my day planner? Have you seen this? Huh? God? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. Do you get truth from the pulpit? Absolutely. Do you get divine guidance from this pulpit? Absolutely. You need to obey that as well. But this is the starting point. This is steering the ship in your life. You have to be an active learner. You have to be an active partaker. That's another conversation I've been having with people as of late. It's almost fun. They're coming to me laughing. Like, it's so ridiculous. If you're not all in, you're screwed. Kind of, so to speak. In other words, it doesn't work. It's never worked. It doesn't work until you're all in, if that makes sense. If you continue just to put God on the shelf and categorize him in terms of priorities, like I said on Sunday, 
behind other things, it's not going to work the way you, the way he wants it to work. You're only frustrating your own deliverance. Anyways, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' prayer, he's asking our Father to save and sanctify us in truth. And as you've likely already noticed, the terms save and sanctify as they pertain to the present tense are nearly and often interchangeable even. That makes perfect sense since God promises that once we are saved positionally, he will sanctify us, and that's guaranteed. Philippians 1.6. Go to Romans 6.14. We're just, again, substantiating the point on the board, going through those, that last list of Scripture. Romans 6.14. I cannot believe I'm almost out of time. This is crazy. I'm about halfway through my notes. Oh, less for you to review. Second time around, right? Just saying. Romans 6.14. For, uh, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's an experiential thing, folks. It shall not be master over you. That's the will of God. God wills to deliver you by faith. Well, there's a little thing called volition that gets in the mix of all of that, as we've discovered in the last couple of weeks. For sin, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We are saved from the power of sin because we are delivered from the domain of sin. Go to Romans 8.2. Romans 8.2. Romans 8.2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Again, we are delivered from the power of sin, even though it still exists and it influences, or its influences can be felt through our three enemies. Go to Galatians 5.16. Galatians 5.16. And we're just amplifying some doctrine here, some groundwork. We're not doing a whole lot of application. We're just establishing the fact that Scripture supports the idea of experiential salvation. And again, I've said this as, frequent, as recently, I think, as Sunday. There's, there's no such phrase as experiential salvation in Scripture. Okay? We just use this so that we can sort of bitwise digest it. But we will not make the mistake of spending so much time on any one thing that we lose the big picture. That would be a problem. That would be bad. Okay? We're not going to do that. Galatians 5.16, but you do have to substantiate such things. When you introduce terms that aren't even in the Bible specifically, you better substantiate them wholly. And that's what the Spirit's doing here. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul expounds upon the daily life of the saint in light of our enemies. Go to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, just as you have always obeyed, just saying, it's in there, 
Obey. Look up, do a word search on obey, obedience, obeyed, obeys. You might be overwhelmed at how many times that word shows up in Scripture. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We just covered that in greater detail. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. It pleases him to save you daily. It pleases him to sanctify you experientially. Why? Because it brings glory to him, and that's his good pleasure. Whatever it is, Lord. So, before I close here, this is a perfect time to think about experiential salvation and sanctification simultaneously. Understanding that they are, as we began with this evening, two sides of the same coin. Again, experiential salvation and experiential sanctification, they are basically two sides of the same coin. God's desire is to save us from sin and to sanctify us to himself by making us righteous. Does that make sense? Save us from sin, sanctify us to righteousness. Save us from sin, sanctify us to righteousness. Whether it's phase one, two, or three, that's what he wants to do. And again, that's why his column's small, because to him it's all one thing. He's going to save you and sanctify you. Okay. Wait, Dad. Wait. Puny mind. Puny mind. Slow the Lamborghini down. Slow. i got to get out. i got to smell a few flowers here. You know, God's like, all right. He doesn't do that. It's not Scripture. I have no idea if he does that, if he rolls his eyes at us. He probably does, though. So let's finish with the high-level stuff again. I guess that'll keep us situated. God saves and sanctifies. He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us to himself. These are two sides of the same coin, both guaranteed for the believer. Analogs are, not exclusively, but things to think about. You know, repent and believe, receive faith, confess, sin maybe, press on, filled with the Spirit. Agree with God, you know, obey. Remember, filling with the Spirit, obey. Yeah. It's impossible for a person to give another only one side of a coin. A believer receives both sides of the coin. So that completes the second tense, if you would, of salvation, namely experiential salvation. I'll read it one last time, and then I'll give you the framework, and then I'll close. Experiential salvation, present tense. God wills to save, deliver His children from the power of sin by means of faith. However, the vestiges of sin frustrate a believer's deliverance through persistent influence. We have three enemies, the flesh, Satan, and the world. And that takes us to next time. Thursday, ultimate salvation. That's positional, experiential, positional from the penalty, experiential from the power of sin, next time ultimate from the very presence 
of sin. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.